Welcome to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Raker. Hi, this is Katherine Raker of Katherine Raker's World. Our syndicated TV show and Let's Just Talk, our syndicated radio show. My guest today is Kristen Slanina, and she is the Chief Innovation Officer of Park My Fleet. And I want to welcome you to our show today. And uh, we had a little talk ahead of time. I used to be in the car business, and this is a very interesting subject for me. So can you tell me a little bit about your company and what you do? Yes, thank you so much, Catherine. Really great to be here. And yes, it is a small world at times, especially in the automotive world. So I have spent over 30 years in the automotive industry, so over 21 years at Ford. And I've had various moves uh, since my 21 years there. And what I'm doing right now, park my fleet. And the reason why I actually am very excited about this job is, you know, we are trying as a society to convert over to more sustainable fleets, as well as just transportation in general, whether it's electricity or potentially hydrogen or even biofuels and CNG. So with Park My Fleet, we are parking fleets, literally. Um, so we can find, let's say you say you need um, to, to house 300 or 400 class eight trucks within a certain distance of a distribution center. So we will park them, do service, maintenance, cleaning, whatever it is that you as the customer would like to do. But more importantly, what I'm working on is what I call that energy ecosystem. So if you needed them to all be electrified, then by me understanding exactly what the, the daily routes are, the types of vehicles they are, I'm creating that end-to-end -end ecosystem. So we can use the grid at times, but if you have a lot of class A trucks that are electric, there's no way that you're going to be able to rely only on the grid. And having grid independent energy and then the battery storage of that, having the software for EV optimized routes that take into account the weather, the driver, the conditions, and even having that partnerships for second life battery use cases and recyclability. Because I want it as easy as possible for fleets to convert over to more sustainable energy. And of course, the facts and stats are important. Those ESG scores and ratings for net zero are very important for companies to track. So can you compare the EV infrastructure in America and Europe and how successful is it? Well, and that's a very good question. So um, I was fortunate enough to be in charge of the Charge Across America race. So we had five teams professionally filmed go 3,300 miles from New York to Los Angeles. Um, I It was on the 30th anniversary of when I was on the MIT solar car team. So it was sort of near and dear to my heart personally and a landmark event because when I was a senior in college, I passionately wanted to have an impact and positively change the world. So I, I had thought we might be progressed a little bit more in the last in the past 30 years since then, but we really have made great progress. So doing the 3,300 miles, I drove a Tesla and I had the five teams drive non-Teslas and not all cars are created equal. But so I didn't, I infuse what I called strategic decision-making. It, uh, you know, would they take the extra credit and is it worth the, the mileage and that energy and the time to do the extra credit or not? And the charging was on the clock. So they had to be very strategic about they're charging and positioning themselves in, at the end and the beginning of the, the races because we did, you know, we would have the, the first place team 
would we start out first the next day? So there was a lot of strategy involved in this. What was very interesting for me personally is comparing my experience and seeing firsthand their experience on the non-Tesla infrastructure. And I had three of the teams that had never driven an EV. So I got to observe that human behavior element too. How quickly were they learning and understanding the apps? Um, I made sure with data analytics that the routes were absolutely possible, you know, that there was charging. Um, but I also saw firsthand that the charging wasn't necessarily working and it wasn't necessarily at the power output rating that it was stated on the charger. It might say it was a hundred kilowatt charger and the vehicle might only be drawing 30 kilowatts, which is a much, you know, that's cutting it a third. So when you're on the clock, you know, that's what I did. I stress tested the system and uh, it was so insightful. So what I observed and experienced firsthand from that trip, and then just this past summer in June, I took my son on his first trip to Europe. And I wanted this whole experience of what is it like to rent an EV? What choices did I have? How knowledgeable were they? And being an American in Europe and using the charging infrastructure and trying to pay, what's that like? And very fascinating experiences. So there's a lot of differences and then there's similarities and there's things that we can learn from it. Um, my, my Tesla experience going from New York to LA was seamless. I didn't have a single problem. I'd never encountered a single charger that wasn't working. It was very easy for me to actually put the charger connector into the vehicle. I didn't have to worry about payment because it's automatically part of the vehicle. So it knows the vehicle and it's automatic. So never had to worry about how to pay. And my experience was seamless. When I went over to rent the vehicle in Europe, um, the I had zero choice about what car. They said I could pay 15 euros a day extra to upgrade. I'm like, well, yes, I, I need that because I'm going to be driving a lot of miles. And I said, what's the car capable of? The guy at the counter had no idea what I was asking. He couldn't tell me the kilowatt charge that it would take, how long it would take me to get, let's say, 150 miles of range, even what the range of the vehicle was. So I kind of went in blind and that first day had to drive from Frankfurt to Zurich. So the first time I tried to pay, it wouldn't let me download the app that it said I needed because it said it wasn't, I wasn't part of my country code. So then I did all this finagling, trying to change my location and country code on my phone, my iPhone, and it still wouldn't work. And, uh, and I was talking to a person who was charging, who knew German and I knew German and we we're trying to get it work. It took like a half an hour to get it to work. So there's a lot of layers of complexity. Um, this experience needs to be easier. It should not take me, it took me throughout these 10 days, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes to pay. And then even sometimes by the end of the 30 minutes, I only then found out that the charger wasn't working. So I had chargers that weren't working. I found that it took me 45 minutes to get 125 miles of actual usable range because I would take it down to 20%. And I'd only charge up to 80% because that's your optimum. You're charging uh, levels drop in half after the, it right. was like after 85%. So um, there's a lot of improvement. There was a lot more chargers in Europe, but that experience that I had in that Tesla going across America versus the BYD Addo that I drove in Europe was worlds part different. Okay. What are the challenges to adoption? And because electric cars right now are expensive. 
How soon do you think that we're going to convert here in the United States? Catherine, that's a really good question. I kind of wish I had a crystal ball here. And, and it's the reason why I'm a huge proponent of focusing on fleet conversion first, because fleets can be centrally managed, maintained. You can work out the charging. You know the routes you're going to have. It makes it much easier. When you start looking into the dynamic for mass adoption, we have a lot of things coming into play. Inherently, people are resistant to change, right? Why change? And why would they want to, to get an electric vehicle that, as I said, my experience for charging that car, it took 45 minutes for 125 miles. Now there are cars out there that are a lot faster than that, obviously, and right. the technology is improving. But bottom line is, is it's not on parity with how long it takes to fill up a gas tank and get 400 miles of range. There's not, a, it's not on par. So until we get to a point where it's actually better and kind of the rule of thumb is, is it 10x better than your current experience? Mm -hmm. It's not, right? Now, policies in, policies can come into play to really change that behavior. So for example, if you're living in New York City and New York City said only electric vehicles are allowed in the city limits, well, that can change behaviors and change, change the buying. Um, so there's ways to do that. Um, as I said, it's why I'm a proponent of, of fleet conversion, I, bigger bang for the buck. And then you get the trickle down effect of the technology. As the technology improves, you get that benefit. People then get more open to it, especially if there's much faster charging and the costs go down. Um, another dynamic into play, which is interesting, is over time, the average age of a vehicle on the road in the U.S. is gradually been increasing. It's now like almost 12 and a half years old. And, you know, so that conversion of just, you know, people, you know, letting their cars go to rest and buying a new car, that's going to take time as well. So there's just a lot of things to interplay for what I call mass adoption um, for people. And so focusing on fleets for me is, is a high priority. Right. So how can your work at Park My Fleet help with these challenges? And do you see people renting them before buying them? The consumer, I said. Yes. You know, so the rental experience, I think, is a great idea. People can then understand how it suits their needs and they can try different vehicles. Um most people, I mean, I'm an engineer, right? So I understand a lot more about the battery charging and the capabilities than what you call the average American out there. So, but taking that step back and thinking of like some of my friends, they have no idea uh, about the kilowatt charge and what that would really mean to them. So there's nothing like experiencing it firsthand. What I found on the race is those three teams that hadn't driven an EV, Mm -hmm. I literally thought on day two, they were going to just hightail it out and say, I'm done. <laughs> and then, then I noticed on like day four, they, they got comfort, you know, they were getting like 350 miles a day on that car, right? They're having to charge multiple times a day. They started to really understand and know it. And then get this, they loved it. By the end of the race, they're like, I, I don't want to give this car up. I want it. And, you know, some of them wanted to start their own EV club in their local area, their local city, because we met EV clubs along the route, especially in Colorado and Colorado right. Springs. And I thought that was wonderful to see, wonderful to see. So there's nothing about just renting it, experiencing it, 
and seeing how it works for you. And when you look at most use cases, the average American drives 40 miles a day and our car sits unused about 95% of the time. So those kind of situations absolutely would work for an EV. And especially people who have homes, right? You can put in a level two charger and charge it up and probably never have that car that, you know, has to really charge at a fast charger unless you consciously decide that you're going to take it on a long road trip. But then you have another option. Like if that was your second car, maybe you have your other car for a long, long road trip if you're going cross country, like what we did in that race. Um, so there's definitely options. And for the majority of use cases, it will work. And that's why we also need a diversity of charging because not everyone has a home. I just sold my home and I'm now living in an apartment and there isn't any charging in here. So me having an EV, it would have to, I'd have to look at it differently and figure that out differently. So there's considerations for that. Um, but there's lots of there's lots of area for opportunity. I also knew someone that said they're only going to buy an EV if it has a thousand miles of range. And I was like, but your car doesn't have that much. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm all about efficient asset utilization. So does it really make sense to have all of that expensive battery componentry, those rare earth metals that we need to use now to have a thousand miles range? I don't think so right? How do you have like what I call range extenders or there's other solutions with that? Or you just, you know, as you get better when different battery developments come into play, then it's faster and faster to charge. And then that whole time of like filling your, filling your tank, you know, equivalency with like your gasoline car is, is a lot more equal and that makes a big difference. So So anyhow, what tip would you offer to women in STEM industries to survive the challenges. And my question is because Ford Ford lost Ford lost a lot of money on EVs in the past couple of years. And yes. I honestly think that it should have taken a little bit more time. And I agree with you. It should have gone through fleet first because that's where you test it, I think, more than anything else. I, I think that what's going to happen with EVs in 2024 because we may be changing the political spectrum again. Right. And um, actually, you need certain things to produce electricity to make it work. And having a home and putting batteries into your garage or wherever, how expensive is that going to be for people? Yeah, so you're right, Catherine, about enablers. In coming into play, which is another reason why you're right. Focusing on fleets makes sense, right? Like, let's say I'm, I only can draw half a megawatt from the grid and I need a megawatt and a half of energy, right? Let me develop my own microgrid and store it with batteries. I can do second life use case batteries and store it on site. That also provides resiliency. And I can also then sell back to the grid at peak demand charges. And I can guarantee that the fleet doesn't have outages where they're stuck, right? And they right. can't move. Um, so it provides resiliency. We need to think differently. The whole vehicle to grid, so V to X, selling vehicle to vehicle. Um, as I said, if if my car is sitting unused, I could sell back to the grid or even to another vehicle with the whole V to X and that bi-directionality when I know I'm not even going to use it that day, right? You can play, you can play it, it. I look at it as every car with a battery could be viewed as an extension of the grid and help for that resiliency. 
But how great would it be like on our gas stations where we're charging EVs at, we could have, you know, solar canopies and such and storage of the energy and leverage potentially nearby solar and wind farms for energy and bring that in. And as I said, it's never a one size fits all. I think there's ways to add to the grid. And if we just all charge our batteries up and keep them that way, then that's not necessarily optimizing this new economy. And um, and we can also generate revenue by selling it back at those peak times. So I just look at it as let's put on a different headset and let's talk about the new ways that we can do it. There's a lot of new companies looking at microgrids of various types, various sizes. And, um, and what does that look like for people and communities and buildings and companies? I want to thank you for what you're doing, your, the technology, and I wish you all the luck in Park My Fleet. And people, they can go to parkmyfleet.com to get more information. Is that true? Absolutely. And I love mentoring and talking with people. So, you know, um, please reach out to me, Kristen Slanina. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And so, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. And Right. I can't thank you enough and take care of yourself. And thank you so much for joining me on Catherine Raker's World. And let's just talk. Don't forget to go to our websites at CatherineRakersWorld.com and let's just talk.com. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Catherine Raker. Did you know that memory loss now affects almost 7 million people in America? And the Alzheimer's Research Foundation estimates that by the year 2050, there will be 50 million people with dementia in America. Are you preparing your family, especially your grandchildren, for this issue? This is Dan Perkins, and I'm the author of a new book for children ages 9 to 12 and their families to help them understand that it's not their fault when Grammy can't remember them. Why Can't Grammy Remember Me is available at Amazon or through your local bookseller. Don't make your grandchildren part of the lost generation. This is Dan Perkins, and I want to introduce you to my latest thriller, Ted Baker in Terrorist Gold. This is a continuation of the Brotherhood of the Red Nile story that created quite a stir because people couldn't really separate fiction from reality. This new novel is a story how the Russians interfered with the presidential election by actually blackmailing one of the candidates. Ted Baker has sent one of his agents, John Seacrest, to Moscow to try and trace the source of money that funded the Brotherhood, and John meets up with Natasha, a Russian with an attitude. Like the others in the series, it's full of cliffhangers. It's a real page-turner once you start You're going to find it difficult to put it down. Some people recommend don't start it after 9 o'clock because you'll be up all night. If you're looking for a really scary thriller as current as today's headlines, then Ted Baker in Terrorist Gold is the book for you. Order your copy of Ted Baker in Terrorist Gold, and after you've read it, go to Amazon and write a review. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness much of which surfaces during the darkness of night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers was created to serve veterans who deal with the lack of sleep due to their injuries. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides a free MP3 player for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an eight-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. To learn how you can help, go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us to help a veteran make it through the night. 
We're back. You're listening to Let's Just Talk with Katherine Riker. Hi, this is Katherine Riker of Let's Just Talk. You know, there's no holiday breaks or emergencies. How to prevent a heart attack this season and the importance of learning CPR. You know that our guest today is Dr. Mike, American Heart Association volunteer, medical expert, and health influencer with over 25 million followers, and he's going to share five tips on preparing for a heart-healthy holiday. You know, it tends to season to be jolly, but unfortunately, the winter holidays also bring more heart attack deaths. And especially, you know, when we have these big family gatherings or holiday parties, he's going to also discuss why everyone from 9-99 can learn CPR and how it could save life in an emergency. So you're never too old or too young to learn how to do this. Welcome to our show, Doctor. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me to speak on a subject that's so, so important, especially during the holidays, as you just mentioned. Yeah, my brother died right after the holidays from a heart attack, so I do know. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. You know, I also lost my mom about 10 years ago. Uh, Her anniversary is also in just a couple of days. And, uh, that's uh, it's always a tough time, but that's why uh, we should use it as a motivating moment to get people excited to learn uh, how to prevent potentially some of these situations. Right. Can you tell me why are there more heart-related events during the holidays, especially when the weather gets bad or whatever, or we don't drink enough water or what? It's usually a perfect storm, uh, a combination of multiple factors that leads to just in general more stress on the heart. So if you're already going into the holiday season in not so great shape, it's obviously going to be a tougher time for you. Things that do stress the heart, obviously big family gatherings, arguing, fun, activities, that's going to put a strain on it. Eating a high-fat meal, high-salt meal, that will put a strain on the heart. Consuming some alcohol will put a strain on the heart. Going outside and being uh, having to shovel snow, uh, exerting yourself very heavily after perhaps not being physically active throughout the year as much as we wish we had, that will put a strain on the heart. When all of these things come together, that puts a great strain on the very important muscle that needs to continuously beat to keep you alive so that if it's not in great shape, a thing like either a heart attack or a cardiac arrest can totally happen. What are some of the symptoms of a heart attack and how can we as a family member or what or know ourselves? The symptoms of a heart attack are not 100% clear cut. They can appear differently in different people. The classic signs that we talk about is pressure or pain in the center or to the left side of your chest, radiating to the left side of your body, perhaps to your jaw, to your arm. You start feeling sweaty. You start feeling short of breath, perhaps dizzy, needing to sit down. If that happens, that's a call to 911 right away. If you aren't sure, and you're thinking you may be having a heart attack, it's still worth calling for help because the last thing you want to do is wait too long and allow the situation to progress and get worse because then it becomes much more difficult to treat. How can one learn hands-on only CPR and why well, the beauty- is it so? Yeah, the beauty of it is that we can learn hands-only CPR right here, right now. Hands-only CPR is a simple two-step process. Step one, you got to call 911. 
The whole purpose of doing CPR is to buy time to allow first responders to come in with advanced cardiac life support. So you're calling 911 yourself or you're nominating someone very specific to call 911. Why I say nominate? Because when we just yell out into the ether, hey, someone call 911, what ends up happening is Everyone else thinks someone's going to call and no one ends up calling. So you're nominating someone to call 911. You, sir, you, ma'am, call 911. Boom, they're calling 911. And while they're doing that, you're performing hands-only CPR, which means hand over hand, pushing hard and fast in the center of the chest. We actually have CPR kiosks across the country in airports where you can practice uh, on how to perform this hands-only CPR. And that's sponsored by the Elevance Health Foundation. And I actually am present on those CPR kiosks. So I'll be there coaching you along, getting you excited for the entire process. Well, actually, when I used to run uh, assisted living with um, all of my gals and guys that worked for me, we had to do CPR. They had to learn CPR. And it was relatively very easy to learn it. So don't be afraid, right? Absolutely don't be afraid. And the, the big takeaway is that when someone's heart stops, the most likely place where it stops is outside of a hospital. And that's where you need to perform CPR. You need to buy them time in order to get that person to a hospital to get medical help. Remember, the purpose of doing CPR is to circulate blood throughout the body that still has a little bit of oxygen in it. So what you're doing is you're buying time, allowing a chance for first responders to arrive, to take over, bring that person to the hospital, and give them a chance at surviving this really scary moment. Can you give us why, why, what are five heart healthy steps everyone can take during these winter months? It's a great question. Number one, we want to make sure we're getting good quality sleep. That means sleeping seven to nine hours a night as an adult, um, ideally throughout the same hours of the night. That's an important quality that many of us miss out. Too many times we say during the week I sleep uh, seven to nine hours or perhaps a little bit less than that. And then on the weekend, I catch up. That's not ideal. You want to be sleeping the same hours consistently every night. Because if you don't and you start shortchanging yourself, as the weeks pile on, you're getting less repair, less rest. When that happens, you're running on flight or flight, and that's not good for the body and the heart. Second, you want to have really good social connections throughout this holiday season. You know, uh, during a time like this where loneliness is at an all-time high, you want to put the step forward and reach out to friends, reach out to loved ones, create and foster those social connections. Three is to eat a healthy diet, which means rich in vegetables, fruits, lean cuts of meat like fish or chicken. Getting high fiber foods in there is really important, and we consider that to be heart healthy. Four is making sure that you avoid bad habits. If you're smoking, quit smoking. If uh, you're drinking, make sure you're drinking in moderation because both of those have really huge impacts on your heart health. And finally, the big one that I love recommending is getting 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. That's not only going to help with heart health, weight loss, it's also going to help with mood, libido. Honestly, if I had to package all of the benefits of exercise into one pill, I'd probably be a billionaire by now. Well, you know, it's, it's really funny, and especially if you have in your family people that have had heart attacks or heart problems, 
or high blood pressure, those all contribute, don't they, doctor? Absolutely. Those do contribute. And that's why probably I should have added a sixth tip into that one and said, have a good relationship with a primary care provider where right. they can catch those things early and lower your risk factors. And some of those risk factors, as you mentioned, are blood pressure, blood sugar, um, cholesterol. Those are things that we can control with not only lifestyle uh, changes, but also certain medications if need be. So very, very modifiable risk factors right there. Now, the next thing is really important. Where can we go to get more information and become heart smart? Well, this is, this is an easy one. We got www.heart.org slash nation, heart.org slash nation. Go online, learn more, become a CPR expert, and get your friends and family excited about it as well. Oh, and you thank you, and thank you for your mission and what you're doing for people around the world and the nation. You have so many followers, I can't even believe it. But thank you very much for joining me on Catherine Rakers. Let's just talk, and don't forget to go to our website at letsjusttalk.com. You've been listening to Let's Just Talk with Catherine Riker. Thank you.